Hey, hello, my name is Dan Rebellato, and you're listening to Stage Directions. Stage Directions is a podcast about theatre and criticism, performance and research. In this episode, I'll be talking about Brexit and theatre with my awesome colleagues, Chris Megson and Nadine Holdsworth. I'll be asking what academic theatre conferences are all about, and I'll be talking to the magnificent Eva Monks about an octoroon and about the aesthetics of the zany, the interesting and the cute. I see you stand like greyhounds in the slips, straining for the start, so I'll delay no longer. Since the Second World War, has there been a greater crisis in British national identity than Brexit? I can't think of one. Even the most enthusiastic Brexiteers must admit that to consciously uncouple ourselves from over 40 years of joint legislation with the European Union, putting under threat all of the personal, institutional, ideological and practical connections we've built up over that time, will be at the very least a lurch, and more likely a seismic upheaval. We are already a divided people. For some of us, the vote to leave was a disaster. For others of us, it was a moment of national salvation. Let June the 23rd go down in our history as our Independence Day. The theatre has long been a place where Britain has reflected on its own identity and history, who we are and what we want to be. With hindsight, one can see a number of theatrical events that have tried to take the temperature of an increasingly divided society, address the rise of UKIP and the far right, the success and failures of multiculturalism, and more. Two examples are worth lingering on. Jerusalem by Jez Butterworth, which premiered at the Royal Court 2009, is a play that addresses itself to contemporary England with unusual directness. play is set in the present, but it's steeped in myths of old England, druids and giants, forests and stone circles. Jerusalem seems to celebrate a pagan England of pleasurable excess and contempt for authority, personified by the play's anti-hero Johnny Rooster Byron. Happy St George's Day! Now kiss my beggar arse, you Puritans! Jerusalem is fascinatingly slippery and ambiguous. Does it love or hate England? Is it a play that looks forward or backwards? Is Johnny Rooster Byron meant to represent the finest these lands have produced, or the worst? Is Jerusalem written in hope or despair? And as the play ends with Byron pounding ritualistically on a drum, we have to wonder, will the old giants come? And if they do, will it be to save us or to destroy us? In the same year, the National Theatre premiered Richard Bean's play England People Very Nice, which addresses itself to the historical waves of immigration that populated and repopulated Bethnal Green in East London. The organisation of the play generates an energetic comedy, as its director, Nick Heitner, explained for Sky Arts. I'd wanted for a long time a big, expansive play from Richard Bean and had been encouraging him to think of a play for the Olivier Theatre. And he came up with this idea, he pitched it, uh, exactly as it's turned out, um, a comic epic about four waves of immigration into Bethnal Green, four acts, uh, funny, irreverent, uh, scabrous even. Uh, and uh, as soon as he came up with that idea, uh, the idea that the same group of actors might play 
the French, the Irish, the Jews and the Bangladeshis and the indigenous English. Uh, it sounded so wild, I thought, yeah, let's go ahead. Through the play, a romance develops across many generations, perhaps suggesting that love will conquer ethnic division. The play was controversial at the time for what some people found refreshingly unstuffy in its representation of the incomers, and others found simply racist. Richard Bean wasn't alone in his belief that, in his words, You go to a dinner party and you start talking about immigration, you're the right-wing nutter. And that's got to go. It's, we have to talk about the economy, we talk about football, we talk about immigration, we talk about Britishness. You know, we've got to lose that or else we'll never, we'll, we won't be able to come up with an intelligent policy. But the large cast and long historical scale meant that character had to be established very quickly, giving the show a cartoonish quality and risking a politics of sentimental cliché. dress is all shades. England people very nice. It's good and bad in all. In the immediate aftermath of the Brexit vote in June last year, the artistic director of the National Theatre, Rufus Norris, was one of the first who felt the obligation on the theatre to respond. I had spent the, the week thinking, thinking we've got to have some response. We're a national theatre. You know, I, I bang on about how I want this place to be a centre of national debate. And when a huge seismic national event happens like that, we need to have a response. And even though I didn't have any idea what we were going to do theatrically, I thought the most important thing that we've got to do in the first instance is listen. That listening project became the beginnings of a show in itself, My Country. Ordinary citizens from around the UK were interviewed on national identity, Brexit, immigration and so on. Their words were then woven together with those of various leading politicians and some original writing by poet laureate Caroline Duffy. The verbatim element perhaps speaks to a desire for the country to be represented as directly and unambiguously as possible on the national stage. As such, my country seems very far from something like Jerusalem, though the play shared with its predecessor a solemn, almost ritualistic quality in its summoning of the spirits of the isle. Terry. James. We are convened to meet the matter of this time and share the voices of our regions in their words as they spoke them. Though at other moments, whether or not they issued from the interviewees themselves, my country fell back on weary cultural stereotypes. Bloody thrashed you with the rugby last week, boy. <laughs> Elsewhere, marking the first anniversary of the referendum, the theatre company Headlong, in association with the Guardian newspaper, commissioned a series of short screenplays that offered creative responses to the referendum. At their best, they offered a range of insights into the varying dynamics of the vote on Britain's disparate communities. This is from Belfast-based Stacey Gregg's wonderful monologue, Yamar's a hard Brexit. Well, he's applied for his Irish passport. My dad near blew a fuse. Craig's getting an Irish passport? Dad's eyeballs out on stocks. But you're British. You're Protestant. People didn't go sailing up the UVF, knocking skulls in for 30 years, so your fella could jump teams when he fancied it. I says, Dad, Ian Paisley Jr.'s been tweeting about getting an Irish passport. In some, though, I felt the wounds of the referendum and the fears of what is to come were too raw for most writers to find a truly imaginative form to intervene effectively in this moment of national crisis. But perhaps the national crisis is also the theatre's crisis. It's often been said that the referendum was polarising, and certainly some of the rhetoric pitted the supposed elites. I think the people in this country have had enough of experts. 
against the rest. This will be a victory for real people, a victory for ordinary people, a victory for decent people. In a way that crudely simplified the state of the country. But in some ways, the vote simply revealed what was already there. The centre ground of British politics moved sharply to the economic right in the 1980s and seems to have remained there ever since. The so-called left behind have been fundamentally unsupported and unrepresented by the major parties for a decade. For me, I wonder whether theatre falls on these fault lines. There's some evidence that theatre going is very low in those areas where support for leaving the EU was high. Perhaps the theatre's not trying hard enough to reach out to those disenfranchised communities, which may be in itself another kind of disenfranchisement. Conversely, in April this year, the comedian Marcus Brigstock reported people walking out of his shows when he did his Brexit material. So are we prepared to listen to each other? But as Rufus Norris says... In this situation, um, whatever you say, we haven't got 17 million idiots out there who voted one way. There was a reason why they did it. And the fact that, that we in the metropolitan centres, particularly metropolitan centres in the south, nearer to Europe, uh, felt shocked by that, just meant that we weren't in touch. Mm. So, therefore, get in touch. If the theatre is not part of a conversation that crosses the leave-remain divide, it should be. After all, the theatre is a great space for thinking collectively about our society and its values. A year on from the vote, I can't honestly say that I think our government is any clearer with us about what it expects from Brexit, what its aims are, and what it believes the real consequences of leaving the European Union will be. The theatre's power lies in examining power, as well as identity, language, nationhood and more. And this has surely never been as important as at a time when we seem to get little from our leaders but fantasy and banality. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> to discuss the theatre's relation to Brexit before and after the vote, I met up with my colleagues Chris Megson of Royal Holloway University of London and Nadine Holdsworth of the University of Warwick. Sitting in the busy Olivier Circle Bar at the National Theatre in London, I began by asking them about the vote on the 23rd of June. How was it for you? I remember the thunderstorm which was really um, quite intense, coming, and of course it was coming over from Europe, so there was a nice bit of pathetic fallacy, <laughs> the lightning striking and the, the room lighting up and Nigel Farage's silhouette at the window, that sort of thing. It, it was felt like a death, actually, and I did feel very bereft and very unsettled and uncertain of my place in the world for, for quite, some, mm. quite some time, actually. And it was interesting going in and talking to students and having their kind of shock and anger at, at what the nation had done kind of reflected back, um, which I found very moving. It is probably worth saying that, of course, the three of us do not represent no. Britain. Because <laughs> Are you sure? We, <laughs> because uh, I, I, I'm assuming by the way we're all talking about this that we voted remain and um, and of course that's kind of inevitable because we are metropolitan academics who work in the humanities and the creative arts so pretty much if we didn't vote remain then then the whole thing was sunk from the start. Chris has said he didn't see it coming really, didn't predict it. What about you? I thought it would be really really close and actually the closer it got the more worried 
I got. But even then, on the night, I thought Remain would just edge it. I didn't predict the result, but I, a few days before the result, I had a feeling that the Remain campaign was in a parlous state. Yes. And I felt that because it was addressing facts, reason, an element of fear and forewarning, um, and using experts. Yeah. Whereas the Leave campaign was hitting the heart and the gut. Mm. And in a referendum, which is all about polarisation by definition, you have to find a discourse that appeals to the heart and the gut as well as the head. And I, I felt that Remain didn't do that. I was really struck by something that Michael Caine, of all people, said um, after the result, where he said, I'd rather be um, a poor master than a rich servant. And I think there was a lot in terms of that sense of um, con control and the people's voice and a sense of a, a mass against an elite and a kind of, you can't tell us what to do, we, we want to be in charge of our own destiny. And I think that kind of sense of a, a, a gut feeling, which I think is, has got lots of historical um, you know, kind of reasons for it. You know, we can talk about empire maybe later, but I think that that sense of a, a British exceptionalism, we often talk about an American exceptionalism, but actually I think there's a, a strong vein of British exceptionalism, which is we are we stand alone. You don't tell us what to do. We will, you know, we will drive the agenda, not you. Has your view changed at all over the last year? And actually, in particular, has your view of that result changed at all in the light of this year's general election? Um, yes, I think my, my view's definitely changed over time. It's become more nuanced, certainly from an initial real gut reaction of anger to thinking, well, we need to understand why. Why, did, why and how did this happen? And so that sense of needing to question, I think, is much sharper now for me than it was initially. I haven't changed my view on Brexit. I still think it's a disaster. But that imperative to take seriously why people vote Leave um, has really made me think about, really made me try and, and it's still working through, but how we encounter difference, how we encounter difference in, in, in a world which is becoming increasingly siloed, timelined, um, where we're within the tribes that we're in, whether that's at work or socially or whatever. I mean, the interesting thing about Brexit is that members of my family voted for Brexit. Um, I have some friends that voted for Brexit. So it's not like those relationships aren't somehow in place. I'm not that much in a bubble. <laughs> But I still, it's one of those, it's a bit like when Trump was elected and there was an awful lot going around about how difficult Thanksgiving was going to be because mm, families right. couldn't really talk about Trump. There is a little bit of that in mm. Brexit, I think, and it's going to take a long time for those conversations to, to properly and, and, you know, to properly unfold. Mm. But my view on it hasn't changed, but I, it has made me think about theatre's role in opening up encounters with difference. Well, that's a good question then. Do you think if we didn't see it coming, did the theatre? I think there are certainly pockets of work where you can see that sense of siloed communities um, at play, whether you're thinking about um, a play like Robin Soane's Mixed Up North, um, where, you know, which 
as a play I think has got a lot of flaws but actually in terms of representing communities which are um, divided the the, the trying to see through the the veneer of community cohesion which is often you know, the buzzword within the, the political kind of elite and seeing that actually it is just a veneer there are loads and loads of problems underneath whether it's due to deindustrialization whether it's to do with austerity whether it's to do with um, you know mixed up north has a, a narrative around um, the grooming of young white girls by Muslim men, you know, but and I think all those things are feeding into a climate, a culture of fear of the other, fear of difference. And then you see again in something like Little Revolution, maybe Lucky Blythe's that sense of actually you've got people living side by side. See the London riots, particularly in that play, where the Pembury estate versus the you know the gentrified areas, they are living in completely different world so I think there's certainly that vein I recognize within British British theatre yeah I totally agree and I did I think theatre did see it coming I think anxiety around immigration um, I'm thinking of Anders Luskarten's play A Day at the Racists um, to an extent uh, if you don't let us sleep we won't have I got the wrong way around if you don't let us dream we won't let you sleep that's right both of which deal with concerns and anxieties around around immigration and the drift to the right, to far-right parties, uh, particularly in A Day at the Racists, which is, I think, from 2010. I think also, perhaps more interestingly, rather than straightforwardly engaging with these issues through realism and recognisable worlds in that sense, but theatre that has looked at that, what you might call the um, emotional structure of feeling of Brexit, which is around rage, uh, fear, or sublimated rage, more interestingly still. And we were talking just earlier about um, Orphans by Dennis Kelly, um, Motortown, Simon Stevens. But like you, I also think verbatim theatre has done a, a real job at sort of being like an antennae mm -hmm. of certain tensions in the body politic. And you were mentioning Little Revolution. I was just thinking about the earlier piece mm. that Alecky Blythe did with uh, Adam Cork, London Road. Mm. And I always remember that line in the piece where um, one of the residents of London Road on hearing about these murders says, oh, it's be an immigrant that's done it. And I think she's particularly interesting as, as a director mm. and mm. theatre person because she is very, in, you know, in communities that are riven with differences and tensions. Mm. Mm. And um, because I think the way she creates her pieces allows for the raggedness yeah, of right. her research exactly, so you get yeah. a sense of of where the research hasn't really worked and and she's very honest about that and that means i think sometimes you catch voices in Alecky Blythe's work that perhaps you wouldn't in something that was a bit more sleek and well edited well she's very well edited but uh, but you know something that's a little bit more kind of on message i saw a really interesting play at the rsc um, which i actually saw it just after the brexit vote but by somalia seaton called um fall of the kingdom rise of the foot soldier the rsc kind of gave a prompt of what's unsayable in the 21st century and her response was to say well actually we d we don't talk about the kind of things that are going ultimately led to brexit we don't talk about the fact of our ease around um, race and different ethnicities living side by side. We, the kind of liberal response is to say, oh look, aren't we all happy in our multicultural world? And she was saying, well, yeah, can we dig 
beneath this a little bit more because actually there's an awful lot of communities that aren't happy with that, that wouldn't recognise that positivity with which you couch that. Um, and the piece um, kind of presents lots of different ways in which kind of anxiety around the other raises its head, whether it's in the kind of blatant racism of the far right or whether it's the just not seeing the, the levels of discrimination that happen within the liberal elite and it's set with a, a kind of teacher who's responding to this young black girl who ends up being um, she's ex- expelled or excluded temporarily for the fact that she's written this blog um, and she's I'm really reminded of Sarah Ahmed's idea of the willful subject. You know, she just constantly keeps putting up her hand and going, do you know what, I, I see that. Do you not see that? Do you not see the way that people look at me, the way that I'm erased, um, that I have to fight harder for my place here? Do you not, do you not see that? So I think that idea of people who are silenced and how can theatre provide a, a space, an arena where those experiences are, are voiced is really crucial and that's that's really interesting as well about um, multiculturalism because there, there are two at least two ways in which that has been promulgated in in British political discourse I think there's one which is I suppose absolutely the kind of liberal view which is that people shouldn't be forced to submit their own traditions and religions and beliefs and practices and, and so on uh, into a supposed English way of life that is probably a bit mythical. But then I think there's also another way in which that has operated, which is basically if we are, have a multicultural society, then we don't actually have to talk to each other. They get on and do their thing, we get on and do our thing, and it only contributes to what you refer to as the sort of silos of British culture. And I, You said right at the beginning of this that there was something about the ways in which people don't communicate with each other. I, th- I sort of think of British plays this century, the, the, almost the overriding tone of them is sort of atomism and mm. people not communicating and people being very closed in. Mm. And in fact, and audiences, quite often you'll watch a play and you, you won't fully understand why the characters have acted the way they are. There's yeah. a really interesting play which I reread recently by John Hollingworth called Multitudes, which was on at the Tricycle and um, was performed three or four months before Brexit. And what the plays are basically a state of the nation play, and it's, it's set in Bradford. It's about protests gathering momentum around, organised by Muslim women, around British foreign policy in the Middle East and about anti immigrant rhetoric in a general election campaign. But what's interesting is that I noticed as part of his sort of stage directions, Hollingworth indicates five or six different ways in which communication breaks down in his text. So he's got like a, a question mark. Well, you might expect a line to be, mm-hmm. there's just a question mark, and that's a sort of hesitancy or a closed square bracket, which is about a thought that hasn't been completed but won't be completed in words, it will be in someone's head. And that is, again, about... Um, It's not about Brexit particularly, but it is about a sort of desiccation of public speech, isn't it? I wanted to ask about two plays that I suppose are unusual in the last decade in that they do quite directly address uh, probably English identity specifically. And one of those would be Jerusalem by Jez Butterworth, uh, and the other one 
uh, would be England People Very Nice by uh, Richard Bean. And I wondered if you thought those plays had an interesting perspective on the kind of state of national crisis that we're in now, or whether they've predicted any of those, those issues. I think England People Very Nice is very problematic, actually. I think what it tried to do is to suggest Yes, there's always been migration and we have always responded to, to it in a very similar way of um, you know, being fearful, worrying about homes, worrying about jobs and then there's a kind of slow process of assimilation and kind of acceptance but not totally. I think the problem with the play is that it doesn't actually look at the the history in terms of colonialism, which leads to kind of some of these or, or war or conflict that leads to the waves of waves of migration that Britain has had, and actually it flattens out that experience. So I have a problem with that as a, a representation of Britishness, because otherwise it would seem that what we're aiming for is um, lots of inter you know racial marriage and everyone moving to the suburbs. Jerusalem is probably a more complex uh, and successful piece of work. I mean, do you think that's actually a very conservative vision of Englishness that is stuck in a mythical past? Or is he trying to do something that's much more sort of progressive and interesting and challenging about who we are? I think it's the latter. I think he's trying to do something more interesting. It's interesting how that play has been categorised, if you like, by scholars and critics and others as a state of the nation play or whether it's actually a state of England play, and actually the extent to which the characters in the play have any national consciousness whatsoever is very negligible. I remember there's, uh, there's one character, I think, who's part of Johnny Rooster's entourage, he's called Davy, and he sort of says, um, my ears pop if I leave Wiltshire. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's a priceless line, but there is that sense of actually, Flintock Wood is, the, is, is his world. So for a play that's about the nation, where does that sense of nationhood arise? And of course, it's, it's what he's doing with myth in that play, his attempt to sort of put in place an, an evocation of English myth, which is grounded in the landscape, which is grounded a little bit in history, but primarily in terms of, a la of, of landscape. Um, and of course, Johnny Rooster, as a, as a sort of living and breathing character, is semi-mythical. I mean, he talks about meeting the giant that, that constructs Stonehenge and, and so, so on. And I think that's a really, I think that's really interesting. That, that, that turn to myth in that play. I was reading a, a book, a really good, interesting book by a politics scholar called Michael Kenny, and it's called The Politics of English Nationhood. And it was published in 2014. And, and in that, I pre-Brexit, but he was sort of talking about how over the past few years, there's been a resurgence of interest in Englishness. And what's led that isn't policymakers or think tanks or politicians, it's culture. And in specifically theatre, I mean, he talks about other things, but he talks about theatre, and he mentions Jerusalem as being part of that work. He mentions also David Edgar's playing with fire, Kwame Kwayama's Elmina's Kitchen, and uh, I think Dr. D by Damon Albarn as being pieces that recent, relatively recently have attempted to revivify English myth. And without that, you can't have an, a national identity. There's nothing to be sort of fearful about. 
it's actually part and parcel of what it is to have an, a national identity. I mean, that, that's his argument. And, and he was sort of saying that theatre's doing really immensely valuable work in trying to look at questions of English nationhood and find ways into imaging them, visualising them, poeticising them. And I, I do love Jerusalem for that endeavour. It's interesting when you think of Scottish national politics, the way that after the failed referendum in the late 70s, there was a, an, an almost conscious sense that actually what needs to happen is Scotland needs to invest in culture and build up a cultural sense of its own identity before it can really have another go at, at, at thinking about devolution or independence or whatever it is. And by, I think, any measure, that is spectacularly successful. And I wonder if there's something... There's a question there for me about how far the theatre in England is able to take that kind of lead in a, in a social political debate. Because one of the things I suppose we've, we, that was very clear when Brexit happened is that the same places that voted leave in very high numbers are also the places that have the lowest amount of theatre going, um, the least amount of money from the Arts Council for, 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 for theatre and other arts activities. And I wonder if there's a sort of sense in which the theatre has become the kind of entertainment choice of the Remain class, and therefore it's not in a position to talk to the rest of the country. I mean, those tensions predate the Brexit. Yeah. Those, those d divisions and inequalities, and it relates to access, doesn't it? If you know, if British theatre has what it needs to break out of, is, is resourced so that it can break out of its liberal bubbles if you're wanting to, you know, put it into that broad stroke terminology. Um, but I do think uh, education is the key thing and it's about, for me anyway, because that's part of my story about how I came interested in theatre, it was through having a opportunity to get involved in a drama club at weekends. Um, I had no drama at school, but those sorts of resources, and to me that, that is the most important thing, to try and give young people access to engagement with theatre, whether inside or outside of school, of school or preferably both. Let me press this point just a little bit further, because, uh, and this is sort of a devil's advocate kind of question, but is it just about access? Because that implies that the theatre is basically fine, it just needs to find ways of letting other people access what it's already doing, or should it actually be, should we be putting different things on stage, and should it be expressing things in different ways, in different forms and styles? I think it does need to, to change. I think that one of the most moving pieces I've seen this year was Cardboard Citizens, actually, and its production of Kathy, um, kind of marking the 50th anniversary of Kathy Come Home. And I was really struck by that piece, although I saw it in you know, the Warwick Arts Centre, it had been touring into, into prisons, into community centres, into homeless hostels. And it was a really interesting, provocative, moving piece and narrative around um, austerity, around homelessness, around, you know, the, the tri people trying, much like kind of I, Daniel Blake, you know, how do people navigate the systems which they're faced with when they're, they're str struggling with homelessness? And 
part of that use, you know, cardboard systems use forum theatre as a way in. And I had never really experienced it in a, in a way where it really, really worked. And I was quite sceptical of thinking, oh, you know, does this really happen? Does it, re- does it really activate people in the way that it, it presumes to or suggests it will? And it did, and it was the most vital experience of theatre viewing um, and watching people debate through getting up and remaking that piece in different different ways, what it what it means to to go through that experience. So I think there's formal issues about the forms of theatre. It's where we where we take it. It is about the subject matter too. So it's all of the things we need to look at in terms of trying to reach out. This would be a good moment to talk about the National Theatre's recent post Brexit verbatim show, My Country, which. I, I understand that there, there's a whole process which was attempting to do exactly what we're talking about. Think about how, what kind of forms do we need, what kind of processes of making are appropriate to reflect the, the Britain that was revealed on, on the 23rd of June. So they did a lot of research going into those communities and, and finding people who would talk about their experience of Brexit and nationhood and so on. And then it toured, and the National Theatre has not done a lot of touring this century, but this was a pretty extensive tour, so they were trying to draw from the nation and then show the nation back to itself on some level. Chris, do you want to just say what you felt about that show? Yeah, I mean, uh, to be fair, I thought the the National Theatre... I commend that endeavour to get something up and running about Brexit to deal with that crisis and use theatre to engage with it. Um, I felt that the piece, which was comprised principally of verbatim testimony, although it also had additional writing from Caroline Duffy, and it was staged very much as a sort of, well, actually quite in the manner of conventional verbatim theatre with bums on seats, more or less in a line, talking out to the audience and calling in the different parts of the United Kingdom to represent voices from that, those particular areas. Um, I, I felt that it was theatrically unadventurous and I felt that it was, in terms of its content, reflective rather than probing or interestingly analytical. The difficulty also with, with my country is that it didn't really have a very diverse cast, no. an ethnically diverse cast. Oh, really? And I just thought that was pretty unforgivable. Mm-hmm. Huh. I also thought, there, and again, this is from reading it, but I thought there's something very odd about the National Theatre doing it because of the way that it sort of lines itself up with Britannia and then Britannia is in this position yeah, she comes to sort of yeah. dispense... Adjudicator you know, of the proceedings, exactly. yeah. Which, you know, I, I suppose thinking less thinking about Brexit itself, but thinking more about Wales and Scotland and how how they would respond to that sense that that Britannia is this is this sort of generous benefactor who's inviting them to to speak when you are the national theatre of well, sort of Great Britain, sort of England now. Um, it is quite a, that's there's a complicated optics there that I I. I I was interested to hear how that would work on stage. It caused me to think whether that approach is, is going to be sufficient in engaging with actually what's going on and actually the, the 
recent shorts that were put together by Headlong and The Guardian, which have recently gone online, I think are really good. I think mm. they're really, really interesting. Um, yeah, and, and in particular, I mean, obviously it's a very different form, a very different way of making the work. I mean, they're, they're fictional monologues put together by various writers and performed by well-known actors. It's online, it's on film. Um, but actually in two or three of those pieces, I felt there was a really, really, really interesting endeavor to, to, to treat seriously the lever mm. argument and not to do that with a kind of um, crypto sneering attitude, mm. but actually to, to actually uh, understand mm. where those arguments are coming from. A piece by Gary Owen, which yeah. is yes. a speech about delivered by a, a Welsh mm. milk farmer. And actually, I thought the most astonishingly brilliant piece of screenwriting I've come across in a long time, A.L. Kennedy's yes. Permanent Sunshine, is that what it, yeah. I'm remembering that right? That was extraordinary. I just thought that was absolutely stupendous mm. as a piece of writing and delivered with aplomb by Scott Reed, as you might expect. But those pieces and others in that, that, set, that collection mm. are really, mm. I think, trying to... Use language to to uncover some of the complexities and ambiguities and split identifications. I thought there was something really interesting, kind of connecting the two, actually, in, in that sense of needing to locate uh, the work very particularly, so you know it's in Mansfield or Nottingham or Winchester. Each of them are very carefully located with the shorts, in the same way that you have with my country. There's that sense in which we maybe post-Brexit have become or have to become much more attentive to the regional nature of, uh, of the country and, and thinking about how theatre might attend to that I think is quite interesting and I was really struck by that with the shorts that you know, I really recommend, I think they were fantastic I wondered if you thought that it's maybe just because we're still only a year on that quite a few of those monologues they are pretty much all monologues uh, are quite literal in the sense that they're responding to Brexit but they respond through content. People mm. absolutely talking directly about Brexit rather than something more metaphorical, more uh, allegorical, I don't know. Why do you think that was? I actually felt a few of them were using language really, really interestingly. Mm. Some of them, I agree, not so much, but I thought some of them were. And, and I actually think, in time, theatre will be a great place to sort of restore a sense of the meaning, significance, ambiguity, nuance, and yes, beauty of speech that has become pretty much, um, you know, it's gone under the tank, tank tracks of the dialect tautologies of Theresa May, you know, enough <laughs> is enough. We are where we are. Brexit means Brexit. Um, and I saw the beginnings of that in those shorts, of a restoration to language of a certain... Mm -hmm. And a, an invitation to listen, I think. So I think, yes, the, some of the narratives are quite conventional, set within very clear yeah. um, social environments. But I think in the, those narratives, there, there is, as you're saying, Chris, that invitation to say, 
let's try and understand those le- the Leave vote, what drove those. And actually, it does provide quite a nuanced picture of the, yeah. the different ways that people came at that decision. Do you think Brexit will affect the theatre specifically? Yes, I think it will. Brexit will affect theatre. I think in lots of different ways. I think practically there will be issues around international collaborations. I was listening to Mark Ball from um, Lyft Festival talking, um, and he was saying that um, you know he foresaw that there would be increased difficulties. You know, even right, you know, just visas, getting people together, making collaborations happen. That sense of the country being seen as not as hospitable to to companies visiting. So there's a kind of practical issues, and then I think there's something around the the op- the optic in terms of how we now look at theatre. I was really um, struck by a production, um, Gecko, who I think is an absolutely amazing company, and they've just done a piece called The Wedding, which again was created, devised pre-Brexit. But seeing it, and it's a piece which is all about the, you know, the contract, the relationship we make as individuals to the stage, to uh, that a couple make within a marriage, that you know, how do we relate to each other, and what are the contracts that kind of bind us, and seeing it post-Brexit, I could only really see it through that lens as well in terms of what that piece now means as we're trying to sort out this messy, messy divorce that we're now, now in. So I think there's, there's that element to it as well. There was something else that Mark Ball was saying and he was talking about the fact that theatre is such an important place because theatre and art in general deals with the ambiguities the, the things in the middle and where you've got a situation with Brexit which is so much about polarisation and how people you know, do find it very hard I think to understand how someone could possibly have voted the way that was different to them actually what theatre can do is provide those spaces for exploring those spaces in between Well I think that's all we've actually got time for so uh, Chris, Nadine, thank you very much Thank, thank you Dan Brexit was very much on my mind last month when I went to a conference on nation, nationhood and theatre at the University of Reading. But so too was the nature of academic conferences. As the word suggests, a conference is an opportunity for people to confer and in that sense conferences have been around as long as conversation. But. As human behaviour became more complicated, so we developed trade conferences and peace conferences, party conferences and academic conferences. This year, it's 25 years since I went to my first academic conference and it's easy to forget how strange they can be in their anxieties and hierarchies, their odd mixture of unexpected formality and unexpected informality. Don't get me wrong, I enjoy them a lot, but it can be odd to encounter that etiquette for the first time. I thought it might be interesting to check in on why people run conferences, why people go, and how to get the best out of them. So, between sessions, I cornered some of my colleagues and asked them what they thought. To begin with, I grabbed the conference organisers. John Bull is a professor both at Reading and Lincoln, and Vicky Angelaki is Associate Professor at Reading. 
So why the theme of nation, nationhood and theatre? It started about two years ago when the CDE, the Contemporary Drama in English, uh, which has an annual conference, asked if we would be interested in staging it at Reading. And uh, this had been, negotiations had been going on for a while, and at Barcelona they were finalised, and I knew immediately what the theme would be. I mean, because you could see the way that events were heading inexorably, not even if you couldn't see the actual outcome. The timing for this was very interesting, actually. Um, it's a topic that CD has visited before, but quite a few years back. So when we went with this topic, it was inevitable that we would bring in Brexit and the referendum. It seemed to me that it was, you know, the inevitable thing that we should be looking at, and indeed that theatre should and was beginning to address. Vicky mentioned that this was a CDE conference, and you might be wondering what that is. The CDE is probably my favourite one of all the ones that I go to on a fairly regular basis. Thank you, John. So I asked Martin Midica, Professor of English Literature and Literary Theory at the University of Augsburg, what CDE is. CDE is the German Society for the Study of Contemporary Theatre and Drama in English. Um, it was founded some 26 years ago. Uh, with the aim of sort of studying Anglophone theatre, we had a, we, we, we've always been having some sort of interest in Anglophone theatre in Germany. Many playwrights from England, from America, Ireland, South Africa even, they come to Germany because they want to have their work staged there. So we thought really 26 years ago that, that it would be good to have annual meetings with uh, academics from England, from America, and also artists, theatre pr practitioners, and um, I'm happy to say that over the last 25 years, we've become some sort of well-known <laughs> all over Europe. Absolutely. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But why do we go to conferences? After all, they can be quite intimidating. I remember the first conferences I started to go to when I was doing my PhD and just afterwards, no one knew me. And it's intimidating, it's nerve-wracking, you feel rather lost. Often, at their worst, conferences can have cliques. That was Graham Saunders, Professor of Drama at Birmingham. But amazingly, none of that seems to put us off. I go to academic conferences because I find them actually really invigorating. As Trish Reid, Associate Dean at the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at Kingston, puts it. I come to them because I enjoy them. You have a kind of group of like-minded people with whom to think critically, really, which I think is a nice space to be in. It's true that for an academic, conferences can be a welcome relief from other aspects of the job. For an academic, I mean, there's lots of um, admin, there's lots of essay marking, there's lots of teaching. Sitting in staff meetings, at, on committees, I've got the excuse of not being on email. You're working on your own a lot as an academic and you know other people are also working on similar things and it's one of those few moments where you get to see people face to face. This is Sarah Grahala, Senior Lecturer at Central School of Speech and Drama. I go to academic conferences to get new ideas. And this is Tom Comford, a lecturer in drama also at the Central School. In terms of my work, I go for two reasons. I go early on in projects if I want to make myself commit to some ideas, write them down, say them in front of some intelligent people and then get some feedback questions and things and comments from people and then I sometimes go at the end of a project to disseminate what I've done if I want people to read it I might say you know this is what I've been writing about and you may want to go and find that for yourselves so in terms of my own work that's why I go but I also go 
because I want to hear what other people are doing. I want to steal their ideas for my teaching. I want to uh, just borrow their thoughts or think from their perspectives or things I might not have um, thought about. First answer is, of course, is to give papers. Um, which may then be published. I mean, that's a sort of the, <laughs> that's a sort of the obvious answer. Of course, we go to academic conferences to get new ideas. But actually, that's not the real answer. That I... Wait, what? So I come to academic conferences two reasons really. This is Liz Tomlin, senior lecturer at the University of Glasgow. I think one of the main ones, to be completely honest, is because it's where you get to see a lot of people that you like and you know um, from around the world, and that you don't get to see very often. And also I go to, to socialise, to see my mates and find out what they're doing in their institutions and find out how their lives are and just, yeah, see, see people. Graham, why do you come to academic conferences? Well, I don't really get much of a social life outside of... Uh... <laughs> so the social side is actually part of the conference, not a relaxation or diversion from it. And sometimes the, those sorts of sessions over coffee or a glass of wine in the evenings are actually... That's where you get the really interesting stuff outside of the formal papers. But I think the social aspect of it in a, in a sort of professional context is really, really important. It's also the time of those late night chats in bars that lead on to things. Projects become engendered at, at conferences. I think that the socialising is work too, of a different kind. Um, so I, I, don't, I, I don't send expenses reports. Uh, receipts back for alcohol consumed but uh, you know I do have drinks with people I I might ask them to examine my PhD students I might after ask you, after them to got them after I've got them really drunk yeah. hold on there's a theme emerging here if I say to socialize I mean that doesn't mean simply drinking in the bar though it certainly does mean that there are social aspects to yes. a conference and then of course there are the critical academic aspects I mean what's the balance in your head I think it's probably maybe two thirds the the thinking and the and about a third social social I think. Yeah. Two thirds thinking, one third drinking. Well, yeah, well there is always the drinking, which is good. <laughs> this probably helps explain why our discipline seems fairly welcoming. Well, I think it is anyway, and so does Vicky. I, I think we're very fortunate in contemporary British theatre studies to benefit from a very supportive community. Though you don't have to take our word for it. Kira Murphy is a second-year PhD student at NUI Galway. And I also find that conferences and senior academics are so lovely because they've all been in our position, I think. So they're always very generous um, and welcoming. And I've never had anyone be any very mean to me at conferences. I think the whole kind of like theatre community internationally is quite supportive and generous. So, yeah. Even so, a first conference can be a struggle when you're not already part of those friendship groups. So how do you get started? Um, first advice is don't be afraid, don't be scared. You may, if you do this for the first time, you may think you are the odd one out or the junior T-boy, but that happened to all of us. I think the best way, if you have this, the opportunity to do that, is to go to a conference with somebody that you know and who can then introduce you to other people, because sometimes it can be a bit intimidating to kind of arrive completely on your own and start talking to people from scratch. I think, in some respects, it's not what the PhD students should be doing, but I think it's beholden on anyone hosting a conference to very much make them welcome. What you're talking about as well is there's something about academia uh, that on one level it's quite hierarchical, isn't it? There are very clear, you know, lecturer, senior lecturer, reader, professor, and, and, and so there's a very clear vertical structure. But then on the other hand, there is, theoretically anyway, um, a completely even 
field uh, in the sense that anybody who's got a good idea will be working on equal terms with anyone else working in that area. And I think sometimes conferences, it can be quite hard to negotiate between the vertical and the horizontal. Uh, Do you say that's true? Yes, I would agree. And I think it also depends where you are. I think in Britain, those hierarchies aren't quite as in place as somewhere like Germany. Um, and and the, yes, um, in the States, the, my tip would, there is, is, is um, you know, wear your suit. Um, if you don't wear a suit in American conferences, you're somehow seen as slightly louche. Um, so I do, <laughs> Graham, you are slightly I am slightly louche, I, I know that. So, you've got a handle on your fear, you've gone with a friend, you're dressed appropriately, but what if you're giving a paper? Even experienced academics can find that a nervous experience. When I give a paper at a conference, I get a chance to test my ideas, which can be terrifying. Um, Also because sometimes you know that in the audience are people who you really admire, um, and they may or may not like what you say, so that can be terrifying. Be confident. Be confident in your paper. Don't lose faith in it. You've decided to present on that topic for a reason. Um, Allow yourself to learn. Don't be defensive, but... You know, as we were always told uh, when we were PhD students, be assertive and have that strength of your conviction to, to share what you know means something. Exactly. After all, what can possibly go wrong? Um, well, my very first academic conference was in Queen's Belfast and I had this perfect PowerPoint all arranged and everything was on the PowerPoint and I got up there and the PowerPoint corrupted and I was left to like wing it at my first conference ever, um, which taught me a great lesson about PowerPoints and not relying on them. So I think in the moment of like everything going really wrong the very first time, I kind of felt that's as wrong as it's ever going to go and it's as intimidated as I'm ever going to be. There's even a guy snoozing in the front row, I think, at that point. Okay, so... What makes a good conference paper? I think it's really important to see it as an opportunity to lay out an argument and not to show us the volume of work that you've done. I think there's a tendency to feel, uh, for us all to feel, that we might have a bit of imposter syndrome and we want to show our learning. And, and um, I don't know, I don't know as an audience member, I'm ever that interested in someone doing that. I'm much more interested in some kind of argument or position. Don't try to cram too much into it. Have a clear-cut thesis. Stick to the thesis. And also, I don't think you should try and say too much, because you know people can only listen to so many. Just say something interesting, <laughs> <laughs> anything at all, and don't be boring. <laughs> it is surprising that sometimes, when giving a paper, some theatre academics lose their sense of theatre. I think remember that it's being delivered to an audience of people it's not being read it's a performance i think one of the most important things is to is to get as far away as you can from simply reading the paper you know and simply putting your nose down and reading it because people can't follow it they lose interest i mean in germany we have a tradition that we read papers um maybe you shouldn't stick too much to the script and there's the golden rule you've got to keep to time People, even very experienced people, are terrible at that. You must keep to time. Don't go over the time you're allocated. You should keep to time. You think you can read out a paper of 3,000 words in 20 minutes. You cannot do that. I usually limit mine to about 1,800 words. And then if you've got a bit more space, you can take your time. And then also you can breathe, you can look at people. Now, this is all about the paper itself, which you have some control over. But what feels the most exposing at a conference, I think, is the questions afterwards. 
That's when it's easy to feel at your most vulnerable, that you might be about to be destroyed in front of the leaders of your discipline. Spoiler alert, this basically doesn't happen. But we all think it's going to, so it's worth thinking about how to make best use of the questions. I'm not very good at questions. The only thing I'm, not, I'm generally good at is not being defensive, I think, in, the, right. in responding to a question. I think I'm, I'm really happy to be corrected or challenged, and I enjoy that. Um, and I think there's a danger of feeling like you're being probed or exposed in questions. And I don't, mm. I, I, I can't actually recall ever seeing someone really do that. So I think that's a fear which can be. I think that was a, that's maybe also something about our discipline, which is relatively friendly. I was once told that when people start out, they tend to treat every question as hostile, no matter how friendly it is. Yeah. And later on in your career, you treat every question as friendly, no matter how hostile <laughs> it is, <laughs> which I think is true. Well, I've been asked some awkward questions for sure um, and questions that I don't know the answer to. And um, a very wise woman once told me that if you don't know the answer to the question, just say so. What's the right way of dealing with questions? Oh, it's difficult because I think they take different forms. So sometimes you get not a question, but an added bit of information that you yeah. might have not know about that's quite useful. Um, sometimes rather than a question you get what someone else is thinking about that thing in their research and sometimes that is useful if it ties in with what you're doing but at other times it can feel a little bit unrelated sometimes to what you're doing. Questions at conferences can be notorious. There's also an art to asking questions that not everybody has learned. I'm always really impressed when someone, so like this morning, someone asked a question which was an actual question. You could hear people waiting for a moment for him to follow up with a statement about how he would answer that question. And it's also, sometimes it's quite hard in the heat of the moment to really understand what somebody's getting at. And yeah. it's only on the train home where I go, oh, that's what they were talking about. Yeah, I construct like the better answer to the question I could have given. Like when I'm at home in my hotel room that evening, I'm like, God, I should have given that answer instead. That would have been so much more concise. But yeah, I mean, that's hindsight. <laughs> Conferences are as old as society, but the academic conference, as I've always known it, is a modern invention. In a sense, an invention of modernity. The international conference presupposes international travel. As the rail and shipping networks developed through the 19th century, hotels began to be built with conference facilities included. The professionalisation of academic life has made conference going a crucial part of career development. This also means that they can look somewhat inward towards the professional life of the discipline rather than outside it. That would be a shame, because at their best, academic conferences model a kind of non-egotistical exchange of ideas, an open conference between interested parties, which to me anyway, seems a far superior example of effective and open human deliberation than is modelled by most of the political systems I know, particularly in the age of Trump and Brexit. That sounds high-minded, of course, because conferences are actually for many things. Um, and of course I come for the gossip. Conference is also great for gossip. <laughs>talk to various people that I know, colleagues, friends and so on, who are critics and academics and theatre makers uh, and talk to them about the things that they've seen that they find interesting and things that they've read that they find interesting. So I'm pleased to welcome my first guest. Do you want to introduce yourself? 
Uh, I am Dr. Aoife Monks and I'm a reader in theatre and performance studies at Queen Mary University of London and I'm originally from Dublin but have lived in the UK for a long time, which I think makes me an authentic Irish person. <laughs> Uh, so Aoife, what is the book you've chosen? That you've... So I've chosen Sian Nagai's uh, book, Our Aesthetic Categories, Zany, Cute, Interesting, which was published in 2012. And Nagai is a scholar in California who has written a book about how we make aesthetic judgments of artworks. Uh, and what she means by that is how we express value, whether a, a piece of art is good or not. But generally, we don't use words like good or bad. In fact, we use more complicated words. Mm. And what she suggests is that the three words that most capture the way we respond to artworks now are the categories of the zany, the cute and the interesting. I suppose the kind of larger context for this, would you say, is that I suppose traditional aesthetics tends to focus on quite grand concepts like beauty or the sublime or the tragic but she is claiming in this book that the zany and the cute and the interesting which perhaps we might otherwise think are slightly trivial experiences in fact she thinks these are probably the most important forms of aesthetic experience um can you just say a little bit about what her argument is why she thinks those are saying something about our society more than those older categories. I think what she argues is that they, she describes them as weak aesthetic judgments, which is actually a really great word. <laughs> and what each captures is a, a deeply ambivalent relationship to art. So she suggests, for example, that if we describe something as interesting, uh, we might genuinely passionately mean that, that it invokes our curiosity and our excitement. But we could also think of greeting an actor we know in a show and saying, that was so interesting, darling, <laughs> and thinking what a terrible cut that would be to them. So, the, so terms like interesting or cute, which she argues both involve a kind of infantilization, but also potential aggression towards an object. Uh, tend to involve deep ambivalence. There is something really interesting in the formation of our field in which theatre history tends to engage with the popular and the mass. But when people write about contemporary practice, it tends to be very attached to the experimental, the avant-garde, the, the apparently marginal. Uh, it's almost that you could say that there's an, an, a direct inverse proportion of the greater number of people who've seen something, the less likely it is to be written about in theatre studies. And I don't want to make some kind of populist argument that because lots of people watch something that we should write about it. Sure. But she's offering something useful there, I think, in suggesting that reaching for the so-called good art, which of course we don't call good, we say it's resistant or subversive, I mean, I think it is it is actually a desire for hopefulness, actually, that, that art could create transformation in some way. But I think she's suggesting that we need to be rather more complicated about it than that. So it seems, uh, if I understand her argument correctly, and I'm not completely sure that I do, but she seems to be saying that each of those three aesthetic categories corresponds to some feature of contemporary capitalism. So as you say, the, the, the cute is a way of capturing aesthetically the kind of universal commodification of everything. So everything is turned into something you can buy and enjoy. Mm. The zany, see, for her, seems to be something about the kind of precarious nature of production. So, or in, in other words, 
that work is overwhelming for most people and we're constantly having to juggle lots of different things and work has spread out into our lives. And the interesting, it's again about commodification, but it's also about sort of the circulation of information about things so that we're constantly bombarded with information, listicles and all that kind of stuff. And that becomes a form of artistic experience or aesthetic experience. Yeah, I, I would add there, I think that's a brilliant synopsis. And I think what she's suggesting, and I'm not sure she ever says this explicitly, but that those categories permeate both the practice of art. So artists themselves are making artwork that is cute, that enables a sort of relationship, uh, an effective relationship, or indeed, that uh, popular culture, popular entertainment involves seeing helpless workers being precarious and that actually becomes a source of pleasure as well as something that we experience ourselves. A question, an obvious question that I had as I was reading this. So she talks about a huge range of different cultural products or artistic experiences from Lucille Ball to conceptual art. Uh, she talks about Jim Carrey a lot under the zany category. What she doesn't talk very much about is theatre uh, in fact, she hardly talks about theatre at all. She talks about performance, but in this maximally expanded sense in which everything is kind of performance. So I suppose my question for you is, has this book got something to say specifically about theatre and perhaps a more narrow notion of performance? Well, I guess I could say what it has to do with the performance that I'm writing about at the moment and why this book has been useful to me in particular, because I've been working on a book for far too long uh, on popular Irish culture. And the reason I was drawn to writing about popular Irish culture, particularly Irish culture in the 90s, which is what the book centred on, is my own really mixed feelings about that experience. And I suppose two key personal experiences that happened to me were seeing Riverdance live on television when it featured in the uh, as the Eurovision Song Contest 10-minute interval act and being absolutely flabbergasted by it, feeling that something was genuinely happening in cultural terms, being exhilarated, mm. being intensely excited about a new manifestation of Irish culture that seemed to speak to the generation I grew up in in Ireland, uh, in which tradition was being profoundly reworked. And I then think of myself going to see the Riverdance stage show about 10 years later and seeing something fatigued and empty mm. and kitsch and really quite difficult, emotionally difficult. Mm. And I guess my mixed feelings, the desire to account for that exhilaration and the desire to account for why now watching Riverdance might not produce that exhilaration. It felt like it was being answered somehow by the broader discussion of aesthetics in this book. I guess the other experience I had was at the St. Patrick's Day Parade in 1999 in New York. It was the first time I'd ever seen a St. Patrick's Day Parade in the States. Uh, and this, of course, was still at the moment where the parade was really quite nationalist in, in favour of Irish nationalism, but also surrounded by gay rights protesters who were attempting to march in the parade and were not allowed. So there were police interventions throughout. Uh, and seeing people holding banners saying England get out of Ireland on them, which was the first explicit nationalism I'd ever really seen in public, having uh -huh. grown up in Ireland during the 70s and 80s, in which a statement like that would have been entirely contraband. Uh, and I then later that day went to a 
St. Patsy's Day event in a gay bar in Greenwich Village, which was a Patsy Cline lookalike contest where drag queens competed in general knowledge quizzes and singing and so on, but bedecked in shamrocks. And I felt far more at home in that culture than I did at the more official version of Irishness that day. The sense of familiarity and estrangement, the sense of being in a cultural experience and also outside of it, uh, the sense of being performed for. So if I go and see a St. Patrick's Day parade, in, in some way, as an Irish person, I am being represented in that experience, and yet I felt absolutely outside of it. I guess what she seems to be allowing me think out is some of that ambivalence. One of the things I... I thought that was so interesting is yes she ranges very very widely but actually it feels very very North American. I kind of think British theatre is not like that. Uh, a lot of the work I think you would be quite hard pressed to find the zany or the cute or the interesting in, in her sense. I think the thing that I'm maybe rather less convinced by is that these are the categories. It feels like there might be other ones that could could uh, speak to us just as much about our contemporary situation. I would, I would argue, you know, if we were to look at British theatre, that embarrassment would be a, an obvious sort of category that yeah. probably does go back a rather a long way. But actually, if we were to historicise sort of 90s popular culture, embarrassment is an intensely important aesthetic experience, yeah. which might not be one that, that Americans, North Americans deal in quite so much, possibly. So can I now turn to the thing you've seen that has set you thinking? The show is An Octoroon uh, by Brandon Jacobs Jenkins, who is an African-American playwright, which is a sort of adaptation and reframing and reworking of Diane Boussago's 1859 play, The Octoroon. Dion Boussago's play, The Octoroon, a quick summary. A young man returns to a Louisiana plantation and falls in love with Zoe, who is an octoroon, meaning she is one-eighth black. But he has a rival for her affections in the form of the villainous McCloskey, who does three villainous things to get his girl first. The plantation is in severe financial difficulties and he engineers that it be put up for sale. Second, he murders a young slave to stop him bringing the family a letter which will prevent the sale of their property. Third, he discovers that because Zoe is black and has not been technically freed, she is part of the plantation sale, and he buys her. However, the murder is captured on a photographic plate. This is probably the first play to use a camera as a plot device. And McCloskey's villainy, pun intended, is exposed. But the news does not travel fast enough for Zoe, who, to avoid a fate worse than death in the closing minutes of the play, takes her own life. The play premiered in New York in 1859 and is a tragic melodrama. Though, during the run, as a brilliant piece of publicity, Boussico rewrote the ending to save Zoe's life. Great, so what we have here is quite a layered thing, because we have a witty and playful production at the Orange Tree Theatre of a witty and playful play by Brandon Jacobs Jenkins, which is itself a witty and playful reworking of The Octoroon, uh, could you just say something about what Jacobs Jenkins has done with that play? Well, I think one of the important things to say about the Boussico play is that he wrote it in New York 
1859. Busico was an Irish-born, Dublin-born playwright who made his career and his fame around the world. I mean, he's a genuinely international writer. And in the Octoroon, it's claimed we see the first American play. And we have to think about that moment. It's 1859. It's just before the American Civil War. Yeah. So he's capitalising upon a really frenzied, fervoured debate. So he creates, in a sense, a series of archetypes on stage, which continue on in varying forms ever since. And I think that's really key, because what we see in an Octoroon is an African-American playwright, Brandon Jacobs Jenkins, whose work is really renowned and actually of huge interest at the moment in, in New York, really grappling with that legacy and asking himself, I think, what it means to be an African-American playwright who has inherited those kinds of images and not simply inherited the archetypes of characters and plot lines, which continue on, but also the kinds of systems of production that Boussicot was working with in the period. So the fact that all of the black characters in Boussicot's production were played by white actors in blackface, the fact that Boussicot himself plays the Native American character, yeah. Yeah, who is uh, speaks gibberish throughout. So Boussicot himself reddens his face and puts on you know, his very kind of Native American costume. And Boussicot's Scottish wife, Agnes Robertson, plays the octorine. So she plays this kind of tragic figure who is one-eighth black. So there's a set of uh, production systems there in which it's not only that we have a, a number of images on stage, but we also have the question of the ownership of those images, who produces them, hmm. whose voice is being heard in the production of those images. And I think Jenkins is grappling with that in asking what it means to be a playwright making images. And so to be clear about this production, we have blackface, so you have white actors blacking up. Well, actually, he specifies in the play that he's not necessarily a white actor blacking up. Okay. Uh, so he says, the assistant who blacks up is played by a Native American actor, a mixed-raced actor, a South Asian actor, or an actor who can pass as Native American, who then blacks up. So... So you actually have multiple layers of passing and performing. Uh, but you have... You have blackface, you have whiteface. Where the character of the playwright, yeah. who's played by a black actor, speaks to us at first, in, in a sense, in his voice. He says, I am a playwright, a black playwright who's dealing with this play. He then whites up. And the premise is that he can't find any white actors who are willing to play racist white roles. And then you also have Busco sort of as a character who adopts red face. Yes, so you have a white actor playing Irish, playing stage Irish, yeah. who then paints his face bright red to play the Native American character. But he, in this play, he seems to be both adopting some of these old theatrical tropes and mechanisms and representational practices, but is also kind of asking really quite difficult questions about them. We've talked about this partly as if it's a rather sober reflection on race and representation and of course it's actually an outrageous and very very funny but very uncomfortable evening of theatre I thought in a, in a brilliant way but it certainly is very very challenging. Theater. I felt like this this was not a reiteration of 90s interest in destabilisation of gender or destabilisation of identity 
in a utopian mode. And I guess it's helpful to frame that postmodern moment as a kind of utopian moment in the emergence of the queer movement in which the possibility of identity fluidity was really being thought out as a future promise. This seemed to me to be really quite different in, an, in, in a number of really important ways. One which is that there was actually rather more love in this performance for the original material than there actually was in that earlier work. And that's fascinating because here we have a black playwright who's saying, look at this Irish guy's work who's creating these you know, incredibly difficult and painful mm. stereotypes, which I have to negotiate and engage with as my theatrical legacy, but actually a real desire to unearth the ways in which that original play was doing something rather more productive than one might first think. Mm. So there's quite a lot of love for the work. I think that's, uh, I think that's really fascinating. It's very clear, isn't it, that um, he does have that affection for the play. You mentioned it's a melodrama, and of course people often despise melodramas, and they think they're clunky and sentimental and obvious on a certain level. But actually, there are two great scenes in the Octoroon. One is when George goes to Zoe to declare his love, but she thinks he's talking about somebody else that he's fallen in love with. It's a beautiful, very clever, very well-developed romantic scene. And then there is the, the amazing auction scene where the slaves are being sold off and it's incredibly tense and it's wonderfully constructed. And they survive, I mean, they're edited down, but they survive very strongly in Jacob Jenkins' version of the play. So that, I think, is, is very clear in terms of his sense of tribute to the original. The other thing that I think he does that that earlier work didn't do was that he exposes, again, the question of production as well as images. And what I mean by that is not simply what kind of images do we look at on stage of identity and how can we play with images of identity, but more importantly, who gets to produce them and who gets paid to produce them. And there's a really great moment right at the beginning where he talks about being given a break, really meaning being given a job and the kinds of jobs you get to do as an artist depending on the identity you yourself occupy. There's fascinating sort of material questions that he's raising that that earlier work I think didn't. Actually I thought about production all the way through mm. this because I kept thinking what must rehearsals have been like? Because there's a, a, a wonderful cast black actors in this, uh, none of whom I think I'd ever seen before in the theatre. And there are quite a lot of scenes where they have to play against this, uh, I think, white actor, but, but definitely not a black actor. No. But he's definitely in blackface and yes. he's doing a minstrelsy voice. And you kind of think, what must that have been like to rehearse? You know, to some extent, you get a job, you're grateful for it and so on. But do you sit there going, why am I having to act with this kind of racist impersonation? But that, of course, is part of what is so interesting about the play, because you're you're constantly thinking about how would they do that? Can you get away with that? Is this okay to do now? Which, of course, is actually asking political, aesthetic, ethical questions about how theatre works and, and how it makes its meaning. One of the possibilities that the orange tree affords, of course, because it's a, a fully in the round theatre, it's a very beautiful theatre, it's a very interesting place to do this play. And part of what it affords is the fact that we are continually confronted with the audience around us. We're watching each other watch. Mm. And that, I think, is actually a theme of this performance too. 
the play, Busico's play, of course, famously is the first play ever to feature a camera on stage, and it's a major plot device. So the play is itself interested in forms of evidence and forms of looking. Busico's play. I think Jacobs Jenkins' play is asking us to take that frame further out and think how we look at looking at looking. And we're watching each other watch. And of course, the Orange Tree has a really interesting mixed audience. So it has a significant number of older white people who yeah. were in full attendance last night. And then there was also a significant number of younger black people who were in attendance last night. And of course, what's always fascinating is who laughs at what. So there were moments in which the black audience members were laughing at things that the white audience felt clearly unable to laugh at or simply didn't find funny, but also didn't feel they had permission to laugh at. Mm. So the, the play very deliberately, I think, acknowledges and divides its audience. It took, We have this character of the black playwright in the beginning who talks about being surrounded by white people and there we are. Thank you very much for coming on my show. <laughs> You're very welcome. <laughs> Thank you, Eva. <laughs> That's it for this episode. Thanks to Chris, Nadine and Aoife for their time and to everyone at the CDE conference in Reading for agreeing to talk to my fluffy microphone. Music is by Nick Powell and Nick McCarthy. Graphics are by Liam Jarvis. Stage Directions is brought to you with the support of the Department of Drama, Theatre and Dance at Royal Holloway, University of London. We're on Twitter at at stagedirectpod. Meanwhile, I'm on Twitter at the eerily cryptic at danrevelato. And if you're wondering, where do I post my five-star review of this amazing podcast? iTunes have provided just such a facility. See you next time. Cheers. Edit out the bathroom. Yes, please. Oh, my God. No, 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 don't worry.